No condemnation, now I dread. And then the latter part of that verse, bold I approach the eternal throne. Great statements. 1 Kings 19 in your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 19, I had intended for several weeks leading up to today to preach a different message, but uh, Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And the Lord is directing differently, I believe. I shared last year, the year before, in the men's devotions, a condensed uh, devotional from this passage, but I believe the Lord would have us all to look at it this morning. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 1. It's a privilege again for me to be here. Thank you, as always, for your kindness. My wife and children uh, send you their greetings as well. I came this close to buying a plane ticket for my wife and surprising her and flying her back up here uh, with me, uh, but uh, we'll have to see about that for maybe next year. She heard the first week of my Baptist history class last year, and she said, I've got to go back and get the second week <laughs> for credit. <laughs> no. First Kings 19 and verse number one. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. You remember what Elijah had done, or what we should say God had done through Elijah on Mount Carmel, uh, the fire falling from heaven, and then the ending of the drought and the famine, and uh, Elijah praying, sending his servant to view the cloud coming seven times as the shape of a man's hand, and then uh, when the cloud appears, he gives message to Ahab, get to Jezreel. Uh, Chapter 18 is one of those, uh, the last verse The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is about a 20 to a 30-mile distance from the top of Mount Carmel to Jezreel, and it's humored me that Elijah outran Ahab's chariot uh, to get to the gate of Jezreel. I think that's an interesting thing to consider. Now, chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets... With the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. If I don't have you dead by tomorrow, she's saying, then let the gods kill me. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba. Beersheba is in the south part of the land of Israel. It's about 100 miles from Jezreel. So if you're tallying the mileage here, this belongeth to Judah. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey. That's about another 20 miles into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals. I like that verse because I like cake. (laughs) And a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again, took a second nap. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Notice this statement, because the journey is too great for thee. 
And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat for 40 days unto Horeb, the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. This is another approximate 200 miles from Beersheba. I traveled about five miles a day, if you do the arithmetic, to get there. He wasn't moving at a very high pace during those four 40 days of travel to get to Mount Sinai or Horeb, the Mount of God. I want to preach a message entitled, The Journey is Too Great for Thee. The journey is too great for thee. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, consider this passage from the Old Testament narrative <clears throat> and the principles of application for us on our own journeys that are too great for us, I ask for your help, and I pray that you would meet needs, specific needs, for wherever each of us are uh, on our journey for thee. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that as we travel, we do not travel alone. We thank you for the clear evidence of that in this passage, too. And so I ask for strength, physical energy, spiritual power, not just as the preacher, but for all of us as listeners, that even as we listen, we would be under the leadership of the Spirit of God and would have a sensitive ear in our hearts to His voice. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Old Testament narratives, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Romans chapter 15, are written for our learning. Paul said in Romans 15, uh, he spoke of the comfort of the Scriptures and how those things were written for our learning and the comforts of the Scriptures were for our patience and help for us as New Testament believers. And as we think about the story of Elijah before us, uh, I remember as we are going to analyze some aspects of his life as he was on his journey that was too great for him, as the angel says to him in verse number 7, I want to be easy on Elijah. Uh, an older preacher, I heard him say this years ago, when you preach uh, these messages on these uh, Bible saints and you identify weaknesses or characteristics in their lives, remember you're going to see them face to face one of these days. So I want to uh, be gentle, easy on Elijah. It's interesting that if it wasn't for a chapter like this, if we read James chapter 5 where we read that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, we might wonder in what ways. But as we see this account in 1 Kings 19, we make a connection. Now I see how Elijah is a man subject to like passions as we are, and yet he prayed. Aren't you glad for that? He prayed and God moved. All of us are on journeys that are too great for us. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. And we have to remember that. And the more we live in the reality of that, the greater our dependence upon him also along with that becomes the greater manifestation of his power through us. It may be in some instances that the journey, a chapter of life that uh, a person is on as a result of a wrong choice. In Elijah's case, he made a choice that put him in this journey that was too great for him, a choice that was not a right choice, and yet God was still merciful to help him and work with him. It may be that the circumstances of life that are beyond your choosing have put you on a journey that is too great for you. It's beyond your capacity. I was fellowshipping with a like-minded preacher friend a couple of weeks ago. He's about the same age that I am. 
And uh, he shared something that the Lord's been doing in my own heart, and that is this, is that it's easy for younger men to rely on their own strength, their own abilities. But we're at an age where we're realizing that our own strengths, talents, and abilities are in a certain sense a weakness. They're a deficiency because they are easy to fall back on instead of living in full surrendered dependence to the Lord. But the circumstances of life put us on journeys that are too great for us. May I tell you that the Great Commission is a journey that is too great for you and for me. But because all power has been given to Christ, we can go forward in the power of that journey that is too great for us. The call of God on our lives is a journey that is too great for us. It is only Christ through us. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In my Christian life, I am on a journey that is too great for me. As a pastor, I'm on a journey that is too great for me. The longer I live and the more I face the daily life of gospel ministry and local church ministry, the more the Spirit of God through the Word of God presses me with the truth that this journey is too great for me. As a dad and as a husband, I'm on a journey that is too great for me. I want you to know as we consider the reality of this, that this has been the reality or the realization of so many of God's servants. They're on journeys. They realized I'm on a journey that's too great for them, for me. Moses said, who am I? Joseph told Pharaoh, it is not in me. Daniel would say something similar to Nebuchadnezzar. David said, who am I? Paul said, though I be nothing. So being on a journey that is too great for us is not a bad thing. We just must live in the biblical reality of the admonitions that God gives to us on that journey. And so on the journey that is too great for us, I want us to notice several admonitions uh, that we draw from the life of Elijah and from his experience that help us on our own journey that is too great for us. The first is this. On the journey that is too great for you, number one, avoid the comparison complex. On the journey that's too great for you, avoid the comparison complex. It's easy to do in a local church and in a Bible college setting. And I'll tell you this, it'll hamstring your journey as quick as anything will to live by the comparison complex. And, and so the lesson for us, the admonition is avoid it, avoid it. Notice what Paul or what uh, what the scripture tells us here. Elijah says, in verse number four, the middle of the verse, it is enough for me, he requested for himself that he might die, and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Notice the next statement, for I am not better than my fathers. He's comparing himself to the previous generation. I personally think Elijah had hoped that he would be the human instrument that God would use to stamp out Baal worship. And yet the reality of it is that He's going to be caught up to heaven, and God would use the succeeding generation to accomplish that work. Elijah has been plunged into a time of discouragement because of the comparison complex. He's comparing himself with a former generation, and he said, I'm no better than they were. They couldn't stamp out Baal worship. I failed at it. I think Elijah likely thought on Mount Carmel that would settle it once and for all. How long halt ye between two opinions? And the people answered, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And there was a great victory that took place. But then they come down off the mountain, 
Jezebel hears about it, and it's like we're back to zero. What did the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12? He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12, look at it if you would. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and commending themselves among themselves are not wise. Uh, the idea of the word wise is, uh, and they're not being wise is this, is essentially saying, Paul, Paul's saying this under inspiration, they don't get it. They don't get it. And what are they not getting? They're not getting people that live by the comparison complex. What we don't get when we do is that that's not the standard of comparison. Myself with others, that's not the standard of comparison. The standard of comparison is Christ and me. I'm glad that though I fall short, far short, infinitely short, aren't you glad that Christ gave us his righteousness? And he's given us his power. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 19 and 20. Every time I read it, it, just I sit back in awe at the fact that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead on resurrection morning is the same power available to you and to me to live the victorious Christian life. What a thought. But Elijah stoops into the comparison complex on his journey that is too great. And the lesson to you and me is avoid the comparison complex. You and I are in a race, not against everybody else in this room. But we're on a race against our own flesh and the finish line is Jesus Christ. He's already run the race perfectly and shown us how to do it. And he runs it with us and empowers us to do so. And so avoid the comparison complex. Number two, another admonition or lesson on the journey that is too great for us. Verse number five, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. Lesson number two, admonition number two on the journey that is too great for you. Get proper rest and nourishment. You say this is a Bible college chapter. We're supposed to be plummeting theological depths. <laughs> I get that. And there's a need for that. Everything that we do is based on our doctrine and our theology. But there's a practical lesson here, and that is this. Get proper rest and encouragement or nourishment. Vance Havner said, based on Mark 6.31 years ago, when the disciples returned from their preaching tour, and he said, come apart and rest. Uh, come apart yourselves and rest a while. And uh, he said, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. <laughs> and I understand that, the, 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 by the way, the rigor of Bible college schedule is good for you. It's stretching you. It's enlarging you, to use the term of the psalmist. But uh, you've heard this before. I remember a chapel speaker my freshman or sophomore year standing up and saying, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap, just not in your class. I know we're at the end of the semester and uh, the fatigue is accumulated, okay? But don't make a bed. I'm okay with your struggling to stay awake, but don't make a bed. This is making a bed. Okay? 
Get proper rest and encouragement. Don't forget your body is a temple. It is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Get proper rest and encouragement. You're on a journey that's too great for you. I'm on a journey that's too great. We need proper rest and encouragement. I think it's interesting that Elijah took two naps. <laughs> Number three. Notice, if you would, verse number nine. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Notice what Elijah said. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Notice this. And I, even I only, am left. You look down at verse number 14. He says the same thing. I, even I only, am left. He's asked the Lord back up in verse number 4. Take away my life. I want you to get something. There's a danger on the journey that is too great for you of becoming a legend in your own mind. I'm the only one left. There are messages that I remember hearing in Bible college, a handful of them that are what I call 40-day meat messages. And the Lord used the message preached by a man in chapel to just burn an indelible truth in my soul. And two of the most indelible of those messages, the theme of one message is this, it's not about you. And then the other one hinged on that statement, don't become a legend in your own mind. And Elijah had, I believe, fallen into that trap in a sense. He'd become a legend in his own mind. Uh, look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Keep your hand here. Again, we're connecting from the Old Testament narrative to uh, New Testament principles for application in our own lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse number six, I love Paul's humility here. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. I'm using myself and Apollos as an illustration to you. In a church that was uh, shot through with contention and puffed up in its pride and was exalting man uh, in their respective ministries instead of Christ and Christ alone, Paul said, I want you to look at me and Apollos as an illustration that you might learn in us, middle of verse 6, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. That no one of you be puffed up, notice this, for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Answer to that question, the Lord. Notice this, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive. Don't become a legend in your own mind that it's me, that I've got this vision and this goal. And you forget, I forget, he's the master and I'm the slave. Now, there's no happier slave that we can be than to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Don't become a legend in your own mind. Our own flesh is one of our greatest enemies. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not 
carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Remembering my own flesh is my worst enemy and we are in spiritual warfare and it's so easy for us to become a legend in our own mind. Number four, on the journey that is too great for you and for me, I say this, a fifth admonition. Pardon me, number four, only move when God says. Only move when God says. Uh, keep your hand here and look back at chapter 17. This is where we're introduced to Elijah. And I want you to sh you see an interesting pattern in Elijah's life. Chapter 17, verse number one, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these three years, but according to my word. Notice verse number two. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence. And so the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and sends him to the brook Kareth. Notice verse eight. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise and get thee to Zarephath. Do you see this? When it's time to go to Kareth, God said, Go. And Elijah went. When the brook Kareth dried up, the word of the Lord came into Elijah and said, Now go to Zarephath, and I've commanded a widow woman there to feed thee. And so Elijah went. Look over chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab. And this would lead to the showdown on top of Mount Carmel. What do you notice? Get this. Every move. Elijah made in the record that we have of his life and inspired scripture, every move he made hinged on or followed the Lord telling him to go. The word of the Lord came unto Elijah, go to Brook Kareth, and he went. From there, the word of the Lord came unto him, go to Zarephath, and he went. From there, now go show yourself to Ahab. It's time for the showdown on Mount Carmel, but I want you to notice something. After things didn't go like he thought they should have on Mount Carmel, he hears Jezebel threaten his life, and he runs for his life, and the Lord had not said go. And on the journey that is too great for you, listen, don't move unless God says. Don't move unless God says. And by the way, the Spirit will never lead in contradiction to this book. So on the journey that is too great for thee, only move when God says. It's interesting, twice the Lord asks Elijah a question. Verse number 9, what doest thou here, Elijah? Can I tell you the background of what's going on there in that question? Is I didn't tell you to come here. He asks the question again down in verse number 13, what doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah, what are you doing here? I didn't command you to be here. Now that leads to a fifth admonition. On the journey that is too great for thee, prioritize the still small voice. On the journey that is too great for thee, prioritize the still small voice. Notice verse 11. And he said, 
Go forth and stand in the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord uh, understood here his voice was not in the wind. And the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, get this, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Prioritize the still, small voice. And may I say this as a follow-up? Compartmentalize or keep in their right place mountaintop experiences. Hey, all in favor of enjoying mountaintop experiences, raise your right hand. Okay? But you're not intended to live there. Mark chapter 9, Matthew 17, there's work that has to be done in the valley. And though there had been a mountaintop experience on Carmel, fire falling from heaven, fire and all that he saw there. And though he's on a mountaintop here, understand the emphasis is on the still, small voice. The quiet place. Abiding and resting in Christ. Prioritizing that still, small voice. We just sang the song, When He is Near. When He is near. Something that encourages my heart about this passage is though Elijah has entered into this journey that is too great for him as a result of a wrong choice, God went with him. God stayed after him. And it was the still small voice that the Lord used to get Elijah's attention. I think it's interesting. There's a, something of a change in the spirit and the tone uh, between the first question, what doest thou here? And the second question, what doest thou here? It's as if we've come to one-on-one -on -one intimate communion and now we're getting down to the heart of the matter. Be still. And we heard a great message on that yesterday. The quiet place, the value, the importance of the quiet place. And so on the journey that is too great for thee, prioritize the still small voice. Number six. As the Lord communicates with Elijah, verse number 15. Verse number 15. And the Lord said unto him, after Elijah said, I even I only am left and they've tried to kill your prophets and now they seek my life to take it away. Just a little humorous side note. Why had he run from Jezebel in the first place? He was afraid she was going to kill him. And then he says to the Lord, Lord, you kill me. And I just humorously have thought to myself, why not just stay there and let Jezebel take care of it if you want to be dead that badly? But notice verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass, 
that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Number six, on the journey that is too great for thee, invest in the next generation. I think it's powerful and something we don't want to miss. Elijah's saying, I'm the only one. They want to kill me. In verse number 15, the Lord doesn't answer that anymore. He simply says, go, return on thy way, and anoint the successors. The focus on the next generation. If we're not careful, we get so focused on our own issues and our own current challenges and our own selves, we realize that one of the greatest responsibilities that one generation has is to invest and prepare the next generation. And on the journey that's too great for you, it'll help you come out of discouragement to realize there cometh one after. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And it's powerful that 2 Timothy, that letter where that verse is contained, 2 Timothy, one of Paul's primary purposes is to deal with fear in Timothy and with uncertainty in Timothy because Paul's about to pass off the scene and he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 7, God's not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And one of the practical things that he tells him to do in the face of his own fear, his own uncertainty that Paul's about to pass off the scene and departure is taking place among fellow former co-laborers, Hymenaeus and Philetus and others that are all named in 2 Timothy, one of the things Paul tells Timothy to do is to invest in the next generation. As a 10-year-old pastor's kid, a missionary on his way to Ivory Coast, West Africa, came through. It was 1985. I was a 10-year-old boy, I believe it was. And that missionary was 27 years old, a bachelor. He'd get married the next year. He would go to the Ivory Coast and be there for 31 years and plant over 30 churches. And yet I didn't know all of that until a couple of years ago. I remembered his name, and I remember the impact that he had on me as a 10-year-old pesky pastor's kid. He stayed in our home. He was there to help with a week of Bible school. He talked to me. He listened to me. He communicated a passion for Christ. Listen, passion is like glue that sticks truth to the next generation. Passion is like glue that sticks truth to the next generation. And for one week... His passion just splattered all over me. And I will never forget that man. And listen, there were times as a teenage boy when I would be struggling with crossroads and decisions to make and what am I going to do and do I want to do this and God having full control of my life that the Spirit of God would providentially bring the name and the face of that missionary to mind. And I would remember that to him, Christ was real. And the work of the ministry was worth giving your all. And his passion, though I had no idea what had happened to him at the time, his passion, his investment in me would fire my soul and help to resharpen my focus and recalibrate my heart. I had the privilege three years ago of reuniting with him. I had no idea in 31 years what had happened to him. 
He saw my name tag at a conference, and he said, Are you Dan Dietrich's son? I said, I am. And he gave me his name, and I thought he was the son of the missionary I remembered. He looked so young. But do you know what's amazing? Is his zeal has not abated. And now God is using him to train a new generation of missionaries. Investing in the next generation will help you on your journey that's too great for you. It'll snap you out of discouragement when you invest in the next generation. Number seven, a final lesson or admonition on the journey that is too great for thee. Notice, if you would, verse number 18. The Lord says to Elijah, yet, that's one of the biggest yets in all the Bible, yet, in spite of your discouragement, in spite of your fa the fact you think that this is the end, in spite of the fact you think you're the only one, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed, his, kissed him. Elijah, you may not know it. You may not see it. After all, you're out here all by yourself. But there are 7,000 that I have that have not bowed the knee to Baal. The seventh admonition that I see is we take this Old Testament narrative and apply lessons to us on our own journey that is too great for us is this. On the journey that is too great for you, take heart at what God is doing through others and in other places. Pastor Tim Rabin was just here and preached the men's retreat. I remember several years ago hearing Pastor Tim Rabin say this, if you had a good Sunday, I had a good Sunday. That's good. You had a good Sunday, I had a good Sunday. Take heart at what God is doing in other places. The Lord is gentle but firm in his working with Elijah. The mercy of God is on display that the Lord kept after Elijah even when he went on this journey. And so on the journey that is too great for you, avoid the comparison complex. Get proper rest and nourishment. Don't become a legend in your own mind. Only move when God says. Prioritize the still, small voice. Invest in the next generation and take heart at what God is doing through others and in other places. My parents, my dad's 65, my mother's 70. They've always joked about the fact she's five years older than he is. Uh, one time, one time my dad teased my mother about being older than he was from the pulpit. And she spoke up. I think it's probably the only time she's ever done this. She spoke up and said, yes, I just married you young so I could raise you the way I wanted you. <laughs> Trust me, that was not a habit that uh, regularly occurred. But. <laughs> My youngest brother is a church planting missionary in the South Sea, Solomon Islands, Guadalcanal. His wife has had to have, uh, she has high-risk pregnancies, and so at 12 weeks, she has to come back to the United States for the duration of the pregnancy. It's made uh, an extra level of difficulty on their ministry because he's there alone a lot by himself, and she has to be here. Uh, but so that he could come home and be with her for the delivery of their second child, um, 
My parents volunteered to go fill in for his ministry for two months. We have a good established assistant pastor where uh, my dad's pastored for 30, going on 32 years now. And so my mom and dad uh, took a leave of absence from the church, left it in the good care of the assistant pastor. My parents went from first world to third world. And um, it was hard on them. They saw some amazing things, though. They both battled with sickness. They both were so sick at the end that they thought they might have to delay their return home. Uh, but for the nine, ten weeks that they were there, God did some amazing things. I think I shared with the class uh, several people Lord got to lead, uh, my dad got to lead to Christ. Um, one day he'd set up an appointment with a guy named Isaac to win him to Christ or to meet him, to give him the gospel. And he had... Uh, he hadn't met Isaac. It was a contact through a person in the church that my brother started. And so my dad had told the guy, tell Isaac to be here tomorrow at such and such a time and I'll meet him here. So dad comes to the church and there's a guy sitting on the sidewalk outside the church. And my dad just assumed it was Isaac and said, um, hey, come on in. I'm here. And so they went inside. Dad opened his Bible and took about 45 minutes and gave the guy his go the gospel, kept referring to him as Isaac throughout the whole 45 minutes. And at the end, he said to him, he said, so what do you think, Isaac? Uh, do you need to trust Christ as Savior? And Isaac said, I do. And he bowed his head right there and trusted Christ as Savior. So when they were finished and Dad was giving him some verses of assurance, Dad uh, said to him, you got any other questions? And Isaac said, yeah, I got one question. Why do you keep calling me Isaac? <laughs> My name's Rodney. <laughs> and Dad had led the wrong guy to Christ, right? <laughs> Of course, he didn't re lead the wrong guy to Christ, but, man, the Lord just really worked in their lives. I was talking to my dad the other night on the, first, uh, on the phone, the first protracted conversation I'd had with him. My dad was very emotional, and he, um, he said to me, and this just challenged me, 65 years old, he's been in the ministry for 50 years, going on 50 years been preaching since he was 15 years old. And he said, son, I've come to see in the week and a half to two weeks that we've been home that the greater work that God did was not what he did through us in the Solomons, but what he did in us. And get this, what God does through you in so many ways hinges upon what you've let God do in you. And on the journey that is too great for you, prioritize this still small voice. Let God do his work in you so that he can do his work through you. Father, thank you for these